Yeah, just to, to say thanks very much to George for the invitation and then the, the privilege of being able to share with you guys tonight. Um, I've really enjoyed being with you and thanks for having me. Uh, happy to see my family again tomorrow. I've got a wife and three children, but uh, sad to leave you guys because I've really enjoyed it. Um, this morning we looked at uh, we looked at the gospel. We looked at uh, Christ through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We covered a whole lot of topics this morning actually, and then we ended up by looking at uh, Hebrews chapter eleven, which is known as the Faith Hall of Fame in the Bible, uh, where a whole lot of the great saints who've demonstrated amazing faith in their lives are listed uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. And we looked at Noah specifically this morning. And I want to follow that up by um, a message tonight that is quite difficult in, in subject. Because I want to ask the question, if God is sovereign, which he is, why does he allow his children to suffer? Which he does. That's a really, really difficult question. But you know what? That is a really important question to ask. Because I can tell you right now, if you're a Christian, you're going to have some really hard times in life. And how are you going to respond when they come? We have to talk about this. Because my fear is that many people lose the strength of their faith when the hard times in life come. You've seen it. Friends of yours. It's all lacquer to get saved and be excited when everyone else is happy. But what did Jesus say when trouble and persecution come? You know, the sun scorches those plants and they die. You have to count the cost of being a Christian. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. So in our last message, we, we, we looked at Hebrews chapter 11. And there's that whole discussion of faith. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. What is the writer of Hebrews? What is his first thought that pops to mind after he's spoken about all these great people of faith? He says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, starts with the word therefore. Which means, because of everything I've just said in Hebrews chapter 11. Because of all these great men and women of God who've gone through tremendous hardships and trials in their life. And the faith that they demonstrated to get through those times. Because of all of these people, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, each of us has a different race to run, and my struggles will not be your struggles. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, his race that he had to run, his struggles that he had to endure were the most difficult of all. None of us will ever have to go through what Jesus went through. And so he's the perfect example for us to look at on how to endure hardship in life. Look unto Jesus, the Bible says. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, you know, how many of you have actually had to shed blood striving against sin? As Jesus did. You haven't had to go that far yet. And have you forgotten, or you have forgotten, he says, the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. 
and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, notice how the writer of the book of Hebrews equates hardship in life with the discipline of the Lord in our lives. He makes a direct link between those two things. Earthly fathers discipline their children. We discipline our children through spanking them when they're young. And then as they grow older, through withholding certain privileges from them. But our Heavenly Father, among other things, uses hardship to discipline us. One of the tools in His hand. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If you have an easy life, I can tell you this, you are not a child of God. And that's in direct opposition to what the prosperity gospel preachers will tell you. They'll tell you, man, come to Jesus, get saved, and you're going to be a millionaire, and everything's going to go well, and your life's going to be hunky-dory. He'll give you peace and joy, and it's just going to be so nice when you come to Jesus. But I'm afraid, my friends, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the opposite, that if everything goes well for you, then you are not God's son. But if you have become God's son or God's daughter, he will discipline you. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the truth. And you say, well, that doesn't sound so good, you know. Well, let's keep reading. Let's see what else the writer of Hebrews has to say about it. Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a six-year-old. And I discipline my children. Why? Because I love them. And I don't know if you've ever been around an undisciplined child before. You know, if you've been in a restaurant and there's some kid acting up at the next table. And, you know, I'm sure that many parents who don't discipline their children are just doing the best they can, you know. They're just doing the best they can with what they know how to do. And they think that they're doing the child good by giving the child everything the child wants, by overlooking disrespectful behavior and inappropriate behavior without any kind of consequences. They think that that is a form of love. But it's, it's really difficult to look at parents of an undisciplined child and not think to yourself, you are making a terrible mistake in not disciplining these children. <laughs> but let me tell you, folks, that God will not make the same mistake with you and me. He's a good father. And he knows how to discipline his children. Because he loves us. Loves us. Verse 10. For they indeed, for a few days, our earthly fathers, they chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. This journey of becoming a holy person, of being set apart by God and worked on by God. Oh, it's for our good, man. He goes on to say, now no chastening seems joyful for the present when you're going through it. It's certainly not enjoyable, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards... It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You want God to train you, to teach you, to lead you, 
to grow you. That comes at a price, my friends. That comes through hardship. He says, um, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know, he's writing to the Hebrews and there's this sort of picture in his head, whoever wrote Hebrews, of, you know, this really philip, tired group of people with hands hanging down. Knees kind of all floppy, no strength because of all the hardships they're going through. And in the light of this concept of God's discipline, he says to them, man, strengthen the hands that hang down and those feeble knees of yours and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated. And this is the fear that those of us who do not expect hard times in the Christian life, when hard times come, The discouragement that we feel will eventually dislocate our faith. But rather be healed. Now the process of God's disciplining us in the Bible is uh, often the word sanctification is used to describe it. God sanctifies us, which means he, he sets us apart from those in the world. And he works on our character and he involves himself in our lives in order to conform us to the image of Christ. That we may be like Jesus. That's why he sets us apart. That's his plan for his people. And he is going to achieve it. God achieves everything he sets out to achieve. So he doesn't do that in the lives of unbelievers. God does not involve himself in the lives of unbelievers like that. That's what it says there in Hebrews. He says, if you have endured chastening, you're a son. And if you're not enduring any chastening, it means you're illegitimate. And unfortunately, or fortunately, he will do this through hardship. Not the only way. God changes us and sanctifies us through his word. Bible reading, through prayer, through fellowship, through teaching. But I tell you, one of the greatest tools in his toolbox is this tool of hardship in the life of the Christian. Now tonight what I want to do is I want to show you an example of this in the Bible. I want to show you the life of a man in the Old Testament. A man who began his life as a selfish, greedy, loveless wretch. And then through a lifetime of hardship and discipline of the Lord. He was transformed by God into a man of humility and selfless compassion for others. It is the most incredible story. And I would wager to bet that you've never seen this before. Why do I say that? Because although this man's story is wrapped up in one of the most staggering stories of all human history. We hardly ever view this story by following the life of this man because this man was the brother of a man named Joseph. Now, normally when we read Genesis 37 through to the end of the book of Genesis, we normally are reading it as the story of Joseph. Sold as a slave, etc., etc. But, but mingled into the story, mixed throughout it. You take off those glasses and you put on another pair of glasses and you look for one of his brothers. A man by the name of Judah. And the title of my message this evening is The Sanctification of Judah. Now I'm going to assume that you're at least vaguely familiar with what happened to Joseph. He was sold as a slave by his brothers as a young man. He was taken to Egypt. Uh, His brothers then killed an animal. They put the blood on his robe. They took it back to their father, Jacob. And they said, look, your son's been killed by an animal. And Jacob's heart was broken because Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Now, just make a mental note of that, because that's going to become important as the story evolves. Joseph, in the meantime, is sold to a man called Potiphar. 
in Egypt, and uh, he works hard and well for Potiphar. He rises within Potiphar's house until one day, we don't know how many years he was there, but after several years, uh, Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely of attempting to rape her, and Potiphar gets angry, believes his wife, throws Joseph in prison. Again, we don't know how many years Joseph was in prison, but it's longer than most people think. Uh, the reason we know that is you do the maths from, from uh, uh, Genesis chapter 38, and it appears that from the time of Joseph's betrayal to the time of when his brothers were standing in front of him when he was the governor of all Egypt, it's about 25 to 30 years. Much of that was spent in jail. We know there was that two-year period where he, the guys had the dreams. Two years later, he's brought before uh, Pharaoh. But it was much longer than that. I mean, Joseph is another example of a man who was under the disciplining, sanctifying hand of God for many years. Um, so he's in prison Pharaoh has a dream. Someone remembers Joseph can interpret dreams. He's brought before Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh what's going to happen over the next 14 years in Egypt. And he gets given in a day. From you know, prison to the palace, he was the most powerful man in Egypt. In fact, the most powerful nation on the earth at the time, other than Pharaoh himself. Um, at that time, there was a worldwide famine and through uh, Joseph's God-given wisdom, he knew what to do. He knew that they had to store up food in Egypt. And when the famine came, after the good years, uh, Egypt was the only nation in the world that had food in store. Now, for a long time, whenever I've read what happens next in the story, I've been really confused by, uh, by, the, by the behavior of Joseph towards his brothers. He, 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 he does the most weird thing with them when they present themselves in front of him. He, he starts this whole complicated charade. This game where they've got to go back and he doesn't reveal himself, bring your brother. and all, It's just weird behavior. And I always wondered what it was all about. So Joseph first saw his brothers when the 10 of them came. There were 12 brothers in all. He was obviously one of them. 10 came. They left the youngest brother, Benjamin, back at home. Uh, Benjamin was Joseph's only full brother. Uh, that's also going to become important later. Uh, Joseph and Benjamin had the same mother as well as the same father. So they were full brothers. Uh, Rachel only had two sons. The rest of the 12 brothers came from other women. So they were his half-brothers. So Benjamin stays home. Benjamin is now Jacob the father's favorite son. Does that ring a bell? It's going to become important. He is the favorite son, so he doesn't go. And Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers when they come before him, but they don't recognize him. And this is where Joseph's behavior begins to get a little bit weird. He pretends not to believe them, that they're there for food. He accuses them of being spies. And he says, if you want to prove to me that you're not spies, I want you to go back to your home and I want you to bring this younger brother of yours that you say you have. I want you to bring him here. And when I see him with my own eyes, then I will know that you are not spies. <clears throat> and so he holds one of the brothers behind in surety, uh, a man called Simeon, the second oldest brother. He holds him behind and the other nine brothers can go home. Before they depart... Joseph has the money that they paid for the, this food. He has it quietly slipped back into their sacks of grain. They go home, get home, open the sacks of grain, find the money. So now there's all sorts of fear and insecurity about going back. So they don't go back for a while. Obviously not too concerned about Simeon. You know, he's a big boy, he'll survive. Simeon was probably in his mid-50s at this point, if you do the maths. 
you know, he's, uh, he's well able to sort of care for himself and we'll just finish the food. Lo and behold, there's no more rain. They run out of food. And Jacob, the father, then says to the brothers, go back to Egypt and buy some more food. But they say to him, listen, that man said to us strictly, we are not to come back unless we bring Benjamin. Don't even bother coming back if you don't bring him, was the message. But unfortunately, uh, Jacob refuses to send Benjamin. Now, it's interesting to note, just as a parenthesis, the brothers' very first reaction when Joseph accused them of being spies and said, go home, get your brother, I'm keeping Simeon, their very first reaction, let me read it to you. They said to each other, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Didn't I speak to you, saying, Don't sin against the boy, and you wouldn't listen? Therefore, now his blood is required of us. The very first thought that comes across these brothers' minds, 30 years after they sold their brother, the very first thought, this is punishment from God for what we've done to our brother. Their consciences had haunted them all their lives. You know, my friend, you can learn something from this. There wasn't a day that Judah and his brothers lived in that 30 years where they didn't remember what they did to their brother. Sin is not worth it. It will haunt you. You know, the devil has an incredible way of tempting you to sin. It's okay, everybody's doing it. It feels so good. Come. And then when you do it, turns on you and he haunts your conscience and he accuses you it's not worth it man anyway so uh, Jacob refuses to send Benjamin now there's something that we see here uh, again that Benjamin was the favorite of their father Jacob at this point and so now there's an impasse. They need food. They're starving to death. But the father refuses to send Benjamin. And they can't go. Who's going to break this impasse? Because someone has to sacrifice something here. Now before we continue the story, we're going to come back to that point in the story just now. I now want to discuss with you this man Judah. Let's wind the clock back to that fateful day when Joseph, as a young boy, went to go and see his brothers when they were tending the sheep and they sold him as a slave. Now that is uh, recorded in Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27 to you. Uh, Joseph actually was going to be killed by his brothers. They were going to kill him. But uh, Reuben didn't want them to kill him. And then someone intervened back then. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Judah was a leader. Later on in the Bible, it, calls, it says that Judah was selected to be the leader of the tribes of Israel. And yet, though he was a strong leader, we see that this young man, Judah, was cruel. I mean, how cruel do you have to be to hear the cries of your brother and sell him as a slave and then take the money? He was a man of no compassion, not only no compassion for his brother, Joseph, but no compassion for his father, Jacob, because Judah knew that they all knew that was part of the problem that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son 
And he knew it would break his father's heart, what he was doing. And he didn't care. He had no compassion. No care for his father. And he was a coward. He was a coward. He had a moment there where he could have made a difficult decision. He could have stood up against his brothers and done what was right and he didn't. He was a coward. Now, Genesis 37, you have to listen carefully now. Genesis 37 deals with the betrayal of Joseph, his being sold into slavery, and the heartbreak of his father Jacob. That's Genesis 37. Genesis 39 to 45 is then the whole story of the unwinding and the unfolding of what happened in Egypt when he became governor and the brothers came. All of that is in from 39 onwards. But if you listen carefully there, you would find that there's a chapter missing in the middle there. Genesis 38 is the most bizarre chapter. Because in Genesis 38, the story that began the previous chapter of Joseph suddenly takes the most unexpected detour. And it's the, it's the life story, it's the biography of Joseph's brother Judah. And it seems so out of place, this additional biography, in the middle of the story of Joseph. So what I'm going to do, which is not easy, I'm going to summarize Genesis 38 for you. This is what Genesis 38 says. That immediately following the betrayal of Joseph, Judah left the family. He left the family home and he went to go and live in a foreign land. There he made friends with a man called Hirah. He married a girl named Shua and they began to have children. Uh, his firstborn son he named Ur. His secondborn son with Shua his wife he called Onan. And his thirdborn son he called Shelah. Now these boys grew up. This is one of the ways that we know the time period. They grew up to marrying age. And then he, he took a wife. Judah took a wife for his, his eldest born son, Ur. And her name was Tamar. So Tamar and Ur get married. And then there's this very short verse that just is sort of the testimony of Ur's life. It says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. Now, if there's going to be one sentence that summarizes my life, I'd prefer it not to be that one. <clears throat> so, under Jewish law, under Jewish law, and this is interesting, this, this is one of the verses that shows us that this fledgling nation of Israel already had some kind of revelation of the Jewish law, because this is a long time before Moses. But under Jewish law, if an oldest brother dies, then, or a brother dies, it doesn't even have to be the oldest brother, but a brother dies and he leaves his wife without children, one of the other brothers has to marry that wife and then raise up offspring with his brother's name. So the next brother was Onan. Onan refused to raise up offspring for his brother, and so God killed him too. This is a dangerous family to be a member of. <laughs> so having lost two of his sons, Judah then, he must have thought this girl Tamar is just bad news. I mean, you think you've got problems with your daughter-in-law. You know, uh, <laughs> he sends her away. And uh, he's, he makes her the sort of half-hearted promise when my youngest son Sheila is grown up and he's of marrying age, then I'll give, her to, I'll give him to you to marry. And of course, Sheila grows up and he doesn't give her to Tamar. Tamar realizes, I'm not going to be given to this boy. Uh, that means I'm going to die childless. I'm not going to be able to bear children and that's not acceptable to me. So she concocts the most incredible scheme to fall pregnant. She dresses up as a prostitute with a veil over her face that can't be recognized who she is. She waits on the side of a road where she's heard that uh, uh, Judah is going on a trip. 
Now, why was Judah going on a trip? Because Judah had just suffered not only the death of two sons, but his wife, Shua, had also just died. So he's, his heart is obviously broken. This guy has had the most incredibly difficult life. And he goes and he visits his old friend Hira, and they go on a road trip. And they see this prostitute on the side of the road, and she obviously calls him. And Judah goes in and he sleeps with her. She falls pregnant. He doesn't have money to pay her. So she says to him, in her like other voice, she says, you give me your ring and your staff. And I'm going to keep these as surety. And then when you send the goat that you promised to give me, then I'll exchange them. So three months later, Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he thinks she's played the harlot with some other man. And he commands that she be brought out and burned. Just before they light the match, she brings out the ring and the staff. And she says, this belongs to the man who is the father of this child. Which actually turned into these children. She was pregnant with twins. And then Judah sees the staff and the ring, you know, busted. And uh, he says, for the first time ever, he actually admits to his own unrighteousness. So we see that there's already now a change in Judah. And he says these words, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. So then Tamar gives birth and she has twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Now that's Genesis 38 in a nutshell. What I want to know is what on earth does that story have to do with the story of Joseph? I mean, it's like the weirdest insertion. The Bible does not give us a biography of any of the other 10 brothers. We don't know what happened to them in that 30-year period, but for some reason, God wants us to see what happened to Judah. And I believe there's good reason for it. Why did Judah leave his family in the first place? I mean, you'd think he's just sold Joseph into slavery. This irritating little arrogant boy that's always having dreams and saying that they're going to bow down to him and he's the favorite son and he's got the colorful robe and you know they've just sold him into slavery you'd think he'd go home and hey kick back and enjoy the good life now you know but that's not what he does he gets home and he leaves he packs his things and he goes and i believe that after he sold his brother into slavery he was so wracked with guilt but every time he was at home, the memories of what he had done to his brother plagued him. Every time he saw his father shedding a tear and his father's depression because his favorite son had been killed, it, it, it cut him to the heart. He was wracked with guilt. And so he ran. He ran away from everything that had ever reminded him of his family. But as, as we'll see he found, as you and I will find, that you can't run away from your guilt. Because your guilt is in your heart and it's in your mind. And you are guilty before a God who sees your sin and is everywhere you go. Just ask Jonah. Can't run away from God. And Judah had a hard life. He lost two of his Sons, he lost his family life, his home, then he lost two of his sons. You have a couple in this church that lost a son in the last six months. And perhaps some of you have seen the heartbreak that that gives a parent to bury a child. This man lost two of his sons. And you also have members of your congregation that have lost a spouse. One of them cooks very good Perry chicken. Shorty, what's his surname? Shorty Liza Gang. Lost his wife. And you get Shorty alone on a, in the surf or something, and you let him talk to you about the deep heartbreak and the grief that he felt for many years. Well, Judah lost two sons and a wife. 
This guy had a hard life. His life was one of total misery. Not only that, he was publicly embarrassed. He got his daughter-in-law pregnant. His reputation was shot. But as opposed to destroying Judah, because all of this was in the hands of God and because God had chosen Judah. Now, my friend, if you're a born-again Christian, God has chosen you. You are one of his children. And all of this happened not outside of God's hand. All of this happened in the very center of God's hand. And because of that, this life of hardship changed Judah from a selfish, greedy young man to a man of compassion. And I'm going to show you that as we finish the story now. So let's jump back in where we were. Uh, The brothers are wanting to go back and buy food. Jacob, their father, says, forget it. You're not taking Benjamin. There's an impasse. Who's going to break it? And we see that Judah speaks up and he assures his father. He makes his father a promise. He says, send the lad with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you also and our little ones. And incidentally, the hardship of Judah's life had at some point brought him back to his home. You know, some people who are genuinely born again, they fall into sin And they run off and they start doing stupid things and they cut everyone else. They put the shutters down and you can't talk to them. But if they are one of God's children, the Bible says he will bring them back. And it may be through many years of hardship that he will bring them back. He says, I myself will be surety for him. Judah telling his dad, I will be surety for Benjamin. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Based on that promise, Jacob the father then relents. He says, okay, take him. They go back to Egypt. They present themselves to Joseph. He invites them to a a lunch at his house. Again, strange behavior. What is Joseph doing? It's this whole game he's playing with them. And it's not clear, but my interpretation of it is that he seats them at the table in their order of birth. So they've got to sit in a specific place and they start looking around this table. And they say to themselves, hang on a second. He has seated us in perfect order of age. What's going on here? The money was in our sacks. They start apologizing. We didn't know the money was there. They're totally freaked out at this point. Um, They have their lunch. They get more food. Uh, Joseph meets his brother Benjamin. Begins to weep. Has to go to another room. Eventually pulls himself together. They all get their food. They get back on the camels. Mission accomplished. Whew. Can get out of here now. This guy's a little weird. But I'm afraid that was a long way from the end of the story. Because Joseph had told his steward, take my cup, the one that I drink from, and hide it in the sack of Benjamin. So they, off they go. And, you know, however many hours down the road on the donkeys, he then sends a delegation to chase them down, and they're acting all angry. You've stolen his cup. Why did you steal the cup? And they're all saying, we didn't steal any cup. What are you talking about? Say, all right, we're going to search you. So they search from the oldest down to the youngest. And they get to Benjamin, and to their horror, there's the cup. So they all turn around and they all go back to Egypt and they fall before this great man. They didn't know was their brother. 
They fall before him and they beg for mercy. And, uh, and then Joseph says to them, tell you what, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a, an unjust man. I'm a rational man. I tell you what, you can all go. Only the brother who stole my cup, he's got to stay with me as my servant. Now the worst thing that could possibly have happened has now happened. I mean, the thing that Jacob was fearing, the thing that Judah made a promise was not going to happen. How could it be that this, you know, when things go wrong, they're just like everything is going wrong on the same day. And now Benjamin has stolen the cup and he's going to stay. What on earth are we going to tell our father? So Benjamin, the father's favorite son, is about to be taken as an Egyptian slave. And their father, Jacob's heart, will be broken. I'm going to read that again because I want to ask you a question here. Does that sound familiar to you? That Benjamin, the favorite son of his father, is about to be taken as a slave in Egypt and his father's heart will be broken. Can you see what Joseph was doing? From the moment he saw his brothers walk in, he knew what he was going to do. He was going to contrive this whole situation to put his brothers back in the situation that they were in 30 years ago. And he was going to see what they would do this time. Incredible. And here they are. What would they do? Would they turn their tails and head back to Canaan and say, tough luck, dad. Sorry, you've lost your favorite son again. And protect their own necks? Or had they changed? Had they learned compassion? Had they been humbled in these many years? It's the most brilliant ploy by Joseph to test what was in their hearts. You talk about moments of truth. This was one of the greatest moments of truth of all history. We are sitting here today because somebody made the right decision that day. And I'm going to read it to you. Then Judah. Who was it that had the character and the courage to do what was right? The man who'd been under the sanctifying hand of God for 30 years. Because God had done a work in him. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And, and don't let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead. Joseph is listening to this. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Can you hear the compassion in Judah's voice? He says, listen man, his father loves him. This man's heart had totally changed. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we can't go down if, your, if, if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. 
And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, Judah says to Joseph, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, Since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And so your servants, we, the brothers, will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. And then he quotes the promise that he made to his father. He stood on his word. He said, for your servant, me, I became surety. For the lad to my father. Saying if I do not bring him back to you. Then I shall bear the blame. Before my father forever. Now therefore. Please. Let me your servant remain. Instead of the lad. As a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father. If the lad is not with me. Lest perhaps I see the evil. That would come upon my father. Judah offers his life up. For his brother Benjamin. Oh it's a beautiful thing. Something he should have done 30 years ago. But he was too selfish and too much of a coward. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. The moment Joseph saw That his brothers had changed. Especially the brother that had said let's sell him. His heart broke. And he he reached out his arms. And he said it's me. You know that's what God does to you. When you come to him in humility. And you say God I need you Lord. I need to be forgiven of my sin. The moment you do that and express your faith in Jesus Christ, all of the barriers are removed and he welcomes you. Such a wonderful picture of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so it was Judah who rose and showed his great character. But that character, my friends, was built on a life of hardship under 30 years of the sanctifying hand of God. And out of compassion for Benjamin and his father, he offered up his life for his brother. Jesus said, no man has greater love than to give his life for his friends. That's what Judah did that day. Now we know that, you know, it all turned out well, but we don't know what would have happened if the brothers had been selfish again and just gone back. We don't know how it would have turned out, but what we do know is that because of Judah's act of self-sacrifice, the entire family was saved from famine. Jacob got to, saw, got to see Joseph again. He got to see that his son was alive. He got to uh, uh, facilitate forgiveness between the brothers. Later on, Joseph says to his brothers, don't worry about it, man. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. I forgive you. Total reconciliation of the family. And the nation of Israel was preserved. You are here today because of that preservation. How God used the hardships of life to sanctify Judah. But what great fruit there was from it. Do you know that of all the brothers... It was Judah that God chose to be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. God honored Judah. 
And I wanted to come here tonight and I wanted to encourage you, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom he loves, he chastens. If you had hard times in your life, like Judah, don't let it discourage you. Strengthen the hands that hang down and strengthen those feeble knees. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses of people who have gone through similar things. And I guarantee this to you, my friend. If you will stand firm and you will keep worshiping God and you will keep honoring God, no matter how hard life is, that is the ultimate act of faith. Because God sees you are willing to worship me though I discipline you. And he does it for your good. He does it to conform you to Jesus. He does it for your good in the end. Can we trust him? Can you trust him tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says that we are to count it all joy when we face various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. But God, your word says we have to let patience have its perfect work that we may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. God, I don't believe there's a person in this room tonight that does not want that. Lord, we want to be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Oh God, but sometimes it's hard. We pray you give us strength, Lord. We pray you give us faith in our hardships, Lord. We pray that you would give us the patience to continue worshiping you and trusting you. Though there are years of struggle, give us faith, O God. Give us courage, O God, to walk this journey. And we thank you, God, that we are in your hand and we can trust you. We worship you, God, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.